You're listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. Today marks our final episode in our current reading plan. We will start a new reading plan at the beginning of the year, and it will be over the wisdom literature, but today we are going over our final book, the book of Daniel. And it uh, it does have a small connection to Christmas, so it's very seasonal, but uh, it is quite a complicated book with a lot of significance for New Testament readers. Uh, how it relates to Christmas, we'll just briefly cover that. Um, we have in the book of Matthew a record of wise men showing up, giving gifts and worshiping Jesus. And you might think, how in the world did a bunch of people from the East who, by tradition, would have worshiped all these foreign deities that had no connection to Judaism and certainly no connection to Christianity that was just being born. Um, how in the world did they know to come and to worship this little baby? And the best uh, guess that we can make at that is looking at the book of Daniel because Daniel is one who becomes the chief of all the astrologers and is put in charge of them as he interprets the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and also serves well some of the Uh, subsequent kings who arise to power in this kingdom. And as he rules over them, he would have likely uh, likely taught them about the law of God and the predictions and prophecies of God. He has his own prophecies that are written in this book, and therefore there was probably a good testimony to the coming Messiah, the king, and some of the people that would have heard these things would have also believed them because of the great works that God did through Daniel and in Daniel's time. Nebuchadnezzar himself gives great um, words of worship towards Yahweh after being reduced to a wild beast um, as he had previously put too much credit on his own account for the works that had been wrought in Babylon and the power that he had put on display. And he seems to be humbled by this and give his uh, devotion and uh, worship towards Yahweh. And many would have probably seen these type of works and seen God in action, seen the deliverance from um, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, and therefore they would have establish some sort of trust in the words of Daniel and his uh, friends who were faithful to Yahweh. And so it, it doesn't surprise us that when the time comes for this star that was predicted in the book of Numbers to come out uh, of Jacob, when the star shows up, they go and they find this Messiah and they worship him. And Matthew puts this very symmetrically to the end of his book. At the beginning of his book, you have the people of the world coming to worship the Messiah. And at the end of the book, you have the Messiah going out in the message of the disciples to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel and the good news. So we've got people coming to Jesus, and now you've got Jesus going to people. This is sort of the bookends of the uh, book of Matthew. Um, but all this was made possible by Daniel, who would have t- g- given a testimony about God and his Messiah, but also preserve the lives of these magi, these astronomers of the East, because had he not have interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar was going to have them all killed. So there would have been no magi left, and certainly they would have not had the testimony left for them by Daniel and the faithful Jews. So that's your connection to Christmas, but we're going to move into some of the other portions of Daniel because Daniel is very complicated. Um, It's very unique in the fact that it's half narrative and half prophecy. And the half that's prophecy isn't just simple prophecy like you might find in the book of Isaiah, but rather is apocalyptic, meaning it comes with graphic imagery. 
uh, that you might see in the book of Revelation. In fact, Revelation quotes Daniel quite a bit. It, probably more than quite a bit. That's an understatement because so much of Revelation comes from the book of Daniel. And so it's very important that we understand the book of Daniel before we dive into Revelation or we won't truly grasp what is being said by John the Revelator. There are parts of the narrative portion of Daniel that preceding chapter 7 that also has some images and some prophecy attached to it. And so you can't just read it as two separate books. It all goes together. And in fact, some of the imagery we get in like Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that actually informs some of the prophecy that comes directly from Daniel later on in chapter 7, 8, and 9. And so the image that we get with the statue that's made of different metals as you go down the body, that will correspond to some of the beasts we see in Daniel chapter 7. But what it all does is it represents the kingdoms of the earth that rise to power, and all of them will be destroyed underneath the coming power of God's kingdom that will arrive with the Messiah, the Son of Man. And while there are different interpretations for what these kingdoms, uh, who they are, and what these metals or beasts represent, um, the primary viewpoints are that they are first Babylon would be the, the head of gold or the, the first beast that we see. Um, then they would be followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Um, but there are some, including myself, who would say, no, it's the Babylonians is the first. The Medes by themselves are the second. The Persians, the third, and the Greeks, the fourth. And the reason I believe that is because I think so much of the material in the book of Daniel is pointing to the Greeks. I'm not saying that there's no references to the Romans. In fact, I would probably talk about some of that in a little bit, uh, where I believe the Romans are being um, depicted in the literature in Daniel. But I think for the most part, we see the Greeks as being um, the primary superpower that is shown through this imagery and these metaphors. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, chapter 7, verse 7, and chapter 7, verse 19, describe um, an invincible army as being the fourth kingdom. Uh, they're invincible. And Alexander the Great, he was invincible. No one beat him. He destroyed everybody he went up against. However, Rome was not invincible. They lost to the Parthians. And um, so that right there kind of shows you that one point for Greece and zero for Rome. Uh, next, Daniel 7, verse 7, describes that this beast was different from all the beasts that came before them. And Greece was entirely different from Babylon, entirely different from the Medes and the Persians. However, Rome was not entirely different from Greece. Uh, it was pretty much Greece part two. Um, much of their language was the same. Much of their customs and culture were exactly the same. Uh, they didn't change all of that. Like um, Greece was completely different from a different part of the world than the Babylonians and, and the Medes that came before them. And so it seems to fit the description better to see that fourth kingdom as Greece rather than Rome. Uh, other evidence, Daniel 7, 19 through 20, describes the fourth beast as one who devours the previous three. Greece went to war with Babylon in the Battle of Opus. 
Greece went to war with the Medes and the Persians in the Peloponnesian War and won both battles. So Greece did devour the three prior to them, whereas Rome didn't have any battles like that that could fit that description. Daniel 2, 40 through 43, uh, describes that the kingdom is divided. It's part iron and part clay. Um, we have those toes, those ten toes, and that probably describes the Seleucid kingdom and the kingdom of Ptolemy. Um, that, those were the two major divisions of the Greek kingdom after Alexander the Great died. And so we have the Seleucids and um, the Ptolemies. And the Seleucids becomes the major focus of the book of Daniel. And it describes those ten toes, the first toe probably being Alexander the Great. And afterwards, it is all Seleucid rulers, which there are nine of them. So it would equal ten, which fits the Greek uh, interpretation better than the Roman interpretation. And of those Seleucid rulers, I believe Daniel, Daniel 8 through 12 focuses on some of them very specifically. Antiochus 2, or Antiochus, I guess I should say 2, Antiochus 3, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the one responsible for desecrating the temple. He goes into the temple, he sets up an altar to Zeus inside of the temple, and takes an unclean animal, a pig, and sacrifices it on this idolatrous altar that has been erected uh, in the name of Zeus. And this created a resistance from the people of Israel. The Maccabean revolt, as it's called, resulted in them fighting off this power and winning their independence, uh, for which the celebration of Hanukkah exists today to commemorate that event. But uh, all of that to say that the focal point of Daniel seems to be, for the most part, the Greeks, and for the most part, what Daniel is looking at and referencing are the events that surround the people of the day. Not necessarily is Daniel written to focus on end-time events. Um, so keep that in mind. There are some who interpret Daniel as just being a book about the end, and you shouldn't read the book of Daniel that way because that overlooks a lot of the details here that are very easily applied to the circumstances that they are living in. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, refers to the writing of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been given a timeline for the captivity of the people of Judah, and it was 70 years. And so Daniel prays to God because he feels like the 70 years are coming to a conclusion, and he wants to know, when is this all going to end? When are we going to be released and freed? And the vision he gets in Daniel chapter 9 gives us a timeline that starts when the people are freed. So at the release from Cyrus, when Cyrus gives them the command to go and build the temple. In fact, it says this in Chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So 70 weeks, 490 years. In that 490 years, those things are going to take place. You're going to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make an atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. A lot of these things can only be described as being fulfilled in the coming of Christ and the atoning sacrifice of him on the cross. Keep that in mind. So 490 weeks from the time that Cyrus says, go back 
And that's what it says here in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that's Cyrus's decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moats, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So that seems to be a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. And some view the remainder of that passage as being describing um, as describing the end-time temple and the destruction of it and uh, some of the interpretations that they would take from places like 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 2, where it talks about the man of lawlessness uh, being in the temple. They would view that as an end-time event right before the second coming of Jesus. However, there are some who interpret this as the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which I tend to lean that direction. In fact, I would even lean that direction most likely in my interpretation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that that's talking about the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. And so if you take that interpretation... Then uh, when you go on from there, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, um, meaning Jesus's death, burial, uh, and resurrection is him being cut off. And in being cut off, he makes a covenant with his people, and he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, uh, is poured on the one who makes desolate. Um, I know I'm reading kind of fast, and you're listening to this without a Bible in front of you likely, but what I take all of that to mean is that Jesus' death cuts off sacrifice. It's no longer necessary. No one needs to bring an offering anymore. Um, But then in conjunction with Jesus coming and making a covenant with his people, to which they no longer need to bring sacrifices, we also have the man of Sin, the one who makes desolate show up, and he destroys, as is decreed, he, he destroys the place of worship. And so we have in the same week, you might say, which I believe is that following the 69th week. It says after 69 weeks. Uh, so that is the 70th week. I don't believe that there's a gap that separates us from the 70th week. I'm not looking forward to a 70th week to occur. I believe that's already taken place. Jesus's death on the cross and the destruction of the temple all occurred in that same era and all fulfilled what is written about here. And, um, that's, uh, that's just a hermeneutic I use in the book of Daniel, and I can kind of give you a, an illustration of what I'm doing when I interpret the Bible this way. Let's say in 1929, a man wrote a letter, and it said, it looks like the end. Times are getting hard. There's not going to be any food. There's not going to be any shelter. There's not going to be any jobs. It looks like the end. And then that letter gets put away hidden in somebody's cupboard, and here we find it in the year 2023. And as we read that, we start to interpret it, and we say, wait a minute, was that guy predicting today? It seems like times are getting hard in some places, and some people perceive that there's not going to be enough food. There's been talk about a food shortage, and, and so on and so forth. You can start to 
sensationalize uh, the events written in that letter and apply them to today. And you might start to wonder, was this gentleman who wrote this letter a prophet, an end-time prophet for today? And you start interpreting all of the events of today based on what was written in that letter. However, what might be another way of perceiving this is to assume that that guy who wrote that was writing about the events of his day, the Great Depression. And there weren't, wasn't enough food, and there wasn't enough to go around. There were no jobs. There was no money. And people started to wonder if they were going to make it. And they were wondering if it was the end. And jump fast forward into a, a future era, whether it's today or 20 years from today, and you pick up that letter and you read it, and you think, wow, things are the same today as they were back then. You could even quote that letter and apply it to today. And that's a way that I think Revelation uses the book of Daniel. I don't think that Daniel is predicting things about the end of time and then Revelation is just repeating those same prophecies. I think Daniel is predicting events of their time, of Daniel's time and his people's time, 490 years worth of time, starting from the decree of Cyrus. And then Revelation, which is written after that 490 years has already transpired, picks up on those same motifs and he sees a similarity between the events of the past and the events of the future. And as he reflects on that and as he teaches on things that are occurring in the lives of the people of the early church and possibly even looking ahead at some of the things we can expect as this era winds down, he uses similar language and applies it to the people of the day. Not that everything Daniel talked about was specific to their time period, but rather it is relevant to be applied to their time period. Uh, another example of this, if that's confusing to you, would be when Eve ate of the fruit, there are times where Paul, for instance, tells the church not to be deceived like Eve was. Well, we can interpret that two ways. Either when Eve was recorded as being tempted and eating the fruit, that was a prophecy of the Corinthian people's sin later on. It was a prediction that they were going to sin, and that's why Paul uses Eve to say, don't do that. It was predicted long ago by Eve and the writings about Eve that you shouldn't commit this sin and be deceived in that way. Or you could say, no, all of that was a, a real event that happened to Eve it wasn't predictive in any sense. It just happened. And now the events that are happening in the church of Corinth are similar, are so similar that Paul can borrow that language and apply it to the people today uh, or in his day and today um, because the same principles apply. And there is similarity between Eve's sin and our sin, just as I believe there is similarity between the events of Daniel and what happens with the Seleucid rulers as they desecrate the temple and the events of 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the events of the church today. I just look around and I see some of the things that are going on even inside of the institutional church that I would connect to some of the events of the past. And I think that the biblical is that the Bible is cyclical like that. It takes events and it uh, shows us the continuity of people and their sinfulness, but also the continuity of God and his 
deliverance and salvation. And so it's not too far-fetched for us to borrow language of the past and apply it to today without trying to insinuate that there was some kind of predictive measure uh, embedded in the text of the past. So that's the book of Daniel. In short, obviously, the details we could unpack for years, but uh, that's a hermeneutic I apply to the book of Daniel. And I hope that helps you as you continue reading. And we'll see you next year in the wisdom literature as we begin to embark on a study of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the book of Job. We'll see you there next time on the Bible Brush-Up Podcast.